Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15. We all have it memorized by now. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards. Some of your versions say spoiling. Some say destroying the vineyards while our vineyards in, are in bloom. And we've talked about how the vineyards is symbolic of our love for Christ, our life in Christ. The way I said it last week was the vineyards really points to our fullness in Christ, the fullness in Him, that life content, that life to the full. And so this morning I want to look again at Mark 7. So go ahead and turn there. Mark chapter 7. Now this is a list that Jesus Himself gave. And you'll notice that a lot of things in the list that He gives are consistent with the list that Paul gives in Galatians and in Colossians. Uh, Start in verse 10. He was saying, That which, and this is Jesus, red letters, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within... Out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Again, this list is very consistent with the one in Galatians and Colossians, but there's a few things that stand out uh, in particular that we're going to look at. Last week we talked about wickedness. We brought that one out. And this week we're going to start at the beginning of this list. And it's evil thoughts. Okay? Um, if, if you think about this list and evil thoughts being the beginning of that list, it would be really easy, uh, and probably rightfully so, I think there's truth to this, it would be very easy to say, you know what, if your thoughts are evil, if what's going on in your brain isn't lining up with God's thoughts, if you're not renewing your mind, then this is what you can expect hereafter fornications, envy, covetousness. You, you hear what I'm saying? It, and so it's easy to, to think that, and I think that's true. That's very, very, very true, because it all starts, uh, you know, really in our brain, our thinking, the way we think about God, the way we think about who we are in Christ, and those kinds of things. But I was looking at this word a little deeper, and I'm gonna, I want to pull something out of it that's just a, a little deeper, a little different. And to do that, we've got to look at the words, evil and thought. The word evil is one of... Several different words in Scripture, as far as the Greek goes. It's one of several different words that can be used for the word evil. This particular word for evil means, in that language, of a bad nature. It means injurious. In other words, it can bring injury. And I love this next word. I don't think I put it up there, but it's pernicious or pernicious or however. You, I don't even, I've never even heard of the word. It essentially means infectious. Okay, So this is something that can be infectious and ultimately that can be destructive. So this word, there's several words for, for evil. This word can mean to be destructive, injurious, something that is infectious. And then it's combined with this word for thoughts. And this word for thought is a very familiar word for us because it's, I don't know how to say it, but dialogismos. It's the word that we get. It's where we get the word, what do you think? Dialogue, okay? So this, this word, uh, the meaning for this word is a, like a deliberating Okay, it's like a self-dialoguing, dialoguing within our mind, um, questioning what is true. These are all the original meanings of this word. Questioning what is true, deliberating, dialoguing. Um, one of the main words that stands out for this is doubting. And, uh, and the, all of this can be used a lot of times when it's used in this way is from the standpoint of disputing or even arguing. Okay, so he starts off this list essentially by addressing doubt. This self-dialogue that goes on in our brain concerning, obviously, spiritual things, our life in Christ. Because 
uh, if we are in Christ, then we set our minds on things above, right? And so he's addressing this. He's addressing this, uh, our thought life, particularly this dialoguing that goes on. And so I want to just kind of jump right in, and, and you can write this down. Doubt has the potential, and please hear me, doubt has the potential of robbing us of the fullness in Christ. Okay, you can write that down. Doubt has the potential to rob us of that life in Christ that is full, content, satisfied. Uh, Not necessarily because doubt is a sin. I want you to hear me. And I know there's all kinds of debates on this. Not necessarily because doubt is a sin. There There are those that would say that any kind of doubt is just a sin. And you need to repent of it and you just need to go forward and forget about doubting because that shouldn't be the case for a believer. And there, I think there's levels of truth to that. But listen, what I'm saying, it's not necessarily, it has the potential to rob us, not necessarily because doubt is a sin, but because doubt, if not used constructively, will lead to unbelief. And that's where it ventures into this area of sin. There's no doubt from Scripture, <laughs> no doubt. There's no doubt from Scripture that, sin, uh, that um, unbelief, absolutely, is a sin. And so really what I'm addressing more than anything is unbelief, but I want to come at it from the angle of doubt. And in particular, I think there are two kinds of doubts, okay? And I want you to write these things down because I think this is a good way to look at it. A lot of people struggle with doubt. A lot of people walk throughout their day and they just doubt some of the simple things of the Lord, from simple things all the way to great and big things. We've, we had some prayer requests this morning that depending upon where your mind is at, you could have some doubts upon whether or not God will protect the Russia team. You could have uh, doubts whether or not John Kimpama will, will receive a good report today. You could have doubts uh, as, as to whether or not you're going to be able to pay the bills this month. I mean, there's all kinds of areas. You could doubt God's existence. There's all kinds of things because we serve an invisible God, you know? It's like, wow, I, I can't see him. Those of us who are in the faith know that there's, it's more than just seeing, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But... But doubt can be this thing that is in our life kind of consistently, even as a believer. And so how do we address that? And I want to address it. I want to give you two things. I don't have a whole lot to say today, but I want to address that from, from two different angles. I believe that, um, that there is a constructive doubt and there's a destructive doubt. A constructive doubt and a destructive doubt. Constructive doubt, uh, the way, I, way I'm kind of approaching it here, it kind of comes from a desire to prove God right. A constructive Doubt wants to prove God right, and, and, and it sends us on a journey of discovering more of the Lord and increasing our faith. Um, destructive doubt, kind of just the opposite, comes from a desire to prove God wrong, okay? And really leads to um, the destroying of our faith, okay? So a constructive doubt and a destructive doubt. And I want to look at those two, and I want to start with, obviously, the, the constructive doubt. We'll start with the positive end of this word. The first thing that I thought about when I was thinking about constructive doubt is that story in Mark 9. If you want to turn there, actually just right down the road. Mark chapter 9. Most of us are familiar with this story. This is, um, this is the story of the guy who comes to Jesus and has a son who is demon-possessed. And um, we can start in verse 14. 9, Mark 9, verse 14. When they came back to the disciples... They saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, saw Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with him? 
And one of the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him into the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. In other words, he wigs out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And Jesus answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Okay? And then it says, They brought the boy to him, which let me just pause and say, Wow, there's this guy who has a demon-possessed son, probably not a believer, and brings him to Jesus. That's a pretty good start, isn't it? I mean, seriously. There's something in him that says, maybe Jesus could take care of this. Worst case scenario, maybe his disciples could take care of it. Okay? So I I think that's a good start for this guy. So they brought Jesus the boy. And when he saw him, when the boy saw Jesus, immediately the spirit or the demon inside threw him into convulsions and started falling to the ground. He began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. Wow. Verse 21. And he asked his father... Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? As if Jesus didn't know. He did. And he said, well, from childhood, it has thrown him both into the fire, or often thrown him both into the fire, into the water, to what? What does your Bible say? To destroy him. That's just what the enemy is after, man. Destroy. Steal, kill, and destroy if he can. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help. I love that, you guys. If you can do anything, there was a measure of faith in this guy. There's this little seed of faith. And, of course, Jesus is like, seriously? If I can? If, if you can? Listen, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. This is a powerful statement because this is a statement that we may not have ever voiced this way, but this is probably where we're at when we're hanging out in constructive doubt. I I believe it's just hard to believe and I need help believing. I serve an invisible God who does amazing, miraculous things and I can't even believe half the stuff that he's able to do and that the Bible says he's willing to do. I, I believe, but come on, I live in a tangible world and serve an invisible God. I believe. Help me in my my unbelief. Is that a bad prayer? I don't think it's a bad prayer. I love the way Jesus responds. When Jesus saw that a crowd was gathering rapidly, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, the spirit came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took the boy by the hand and raised him up. The boy got up, and when he came into the, um, the house, his disciples began questioning Jesus, how did, you, how did this happen? We couldn't do it. How did you do it? Jesus goes on to talk about prayer and fasting. My point is right here that in the midst of this question, I, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Jesus wasn't like, look, I can't believe that you would even question anything. I am Jesus. I walked on water the other day. Can you top that? Have you ever seen anybody do that? So there's this thing, I believe, help me in my unbelief. There was a, and what I love about this guy is that there was a little bit of faith there. Jesus, if you were able, well, he wouldn't have even taken him to Jesus if he didn't think he was able. There was a little bit of faith there. Faith to believe that God was amazing and was willing and could and would do amazing things. It's just that that faith 
needed a little boost. You guys, is there times where our faith needs a little boost? I mean, seriously. It's not that I don't believe in the big scheme of things. It's just like there's times where it's like, I can't believe this. This is just, this is beyond my finite mind here. I believe you, Lord. Help me in my unbelief. I could use a boost here in my faith. And guess what? Jesus is okay with that. I don't think he's like, you know what? You should be flying on your own by now. That's just not how he is. In fact, I'm going to make a statement here. And I want you to write it down. I don't know that we could solidly base this big theological mountain on this statement. But there's a part of me that really that really believes this. A big part of me. And that's that God celebrates constructive doubt because it leads to an increase of faith. In other words, when I am willing to venture into some unknown areas and dig out truths or ask questions that are difficult that most people would judge me for even asking, I think God's like, that's cool. Because God knows where it's going to end. The scripture says that he is a rewarder, and we've been saying this a lot lately. He is a rewarder of who? Those who earnestly or diligently seek him. Diligence is a, it's like an intentional effort. When I am diligent, I am, I am seeking after things. I don't even know what I'm seeking. I just know what I want to find, and that's more of Jesus. And so there's something about this, constructive doubt. God, I believe he celebrates constructive doubt. Now, please hear me. God celebrates constructive doubt because he knows that at the end of this journey for Tony or for James or for Hannah or for Marvin, there's going to be an increase of faith. Because as they seek me diligently, what am I going to do? Leave them hanging? Oh, I'm sorry, I got plans. No. God's going to pour himself in. When you draw near to him, Scripture says that he will draw near to you. There's some foundational promises that God uh, promises for us And a little doubt isn't going to deter him. Amen? Constructive faith gets us out of the boat. Think about Peter. And I love this scene because it really gives, I think, gives a glimpse into Jesus' heart on doubt. Think about Peter. We know the story. Jesus is coming out from um, from out (laughs) in the storm, walking on water. And Peter's like, ahoy, you know. (laughs) And says, Lord, if it's you, have me come out on the water. And Jesus is like, come on. And Peter's like, I'm coming out and starts walking. Now, at some point, he's probably like, holy, this is not natural. This is miraculous. I don't understand this. This probably shouldn't be happening. And as he's thinking that, who wouldn't have that thought? Come on. You know what I mean? As he's having that thought, oh, he starts sinking. Because you know what? Those doubts do have an effect on our lives and our walk with the Lord. They, they, it, they do, for sure. And we'll talk about how that can go south. But right there in the moment, he started sinking, and Jesus reached out his hand, and he said, um, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, and I think this is a tender statement. I don't think Jesus was yelling. I mean, he might have been yelling if the storm was really loud, but I think he said it from a heart of tenderness. You of little faith, why did you doubt? I love the terminology, you of little faith. Was Peter evil for doubting and starting to sink? No. He just needed more faith. He was just 
a person of, of little faith at this point in his life, where he was at. Dude, I'm like, you got more faith than me. I would have grabbed a floaty. And you know, he starts walking on out. But think about that, you guys. We walk in condemnation because of little doubts that we have. And we think somehow I'm having a doubt, and so the enemy must be deceiving me. Listen, you know, there's a point of entrance that the enemy will come in and start some deception and confusion. But doubt in and of itself is not an evil thing. Especially if it's constructive and leads us to a deeper faith. You of little faith. Jesus was saying, you know what? You need more faith. And he says, why did you doubt? So in that moment, there was a doubt, for sure. But notice that Jesus was like, I can't believe you. It's not like Jesus dunked him or something. Take that, you know, sober up, boy, you know. It's not how it was. There's an there's a old English preacher from the early 1900s, J.C. Ryle. He said, doubting does not prove that a man has no faith, but only that his faith is small. And even when our faith is small, the Lord is ready to help us. I love that. It reminds me of James 1.5. He says, James says, and this is Jesus' brother, you know. This is a guy who re- probably wrestled with doubt maybe more than any of um, Jesus' followers. His own brother. You know what I mean? It's my, my brother. My brother's God. Okay, whatever. I doubt it. You know, Whatever. They grew up together, all kinds of doubts. But look at what he says. You know what? If any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you lacks the ability to understand or to perceive or wrap your brain around a thing that is spiritual, look what he says. Let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. In other words, he's not going to shame you for asking. I'm not going to shame you for asking. And it goes on to say, and it will be given to, given to him. Again, what R.C. Ryle says, doubting does not prove that a man doesn't have faith, but that his faith is small. He needs more of it. And even when our faith is small, the Lord is willing, ready, and even excited to help. It's not like God's walking behind you, you know, kicking you in the rear every time you got a doubt. I can't get back out there in the game. I can't believe you It's just not God's heart. But you know what? We walk around like that's God's heart. That's just not God's heart. I don't believe it. He goes on to say in James 1, 5, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. So there's that word doubt. He must ask in faith, whatever it is you're looking for, you must ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts, and listen to this carefully, is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. You need to understand that the core meaning of the word doubt is to waver. Okay? It it means to waver. It means to do this. It means to not be solidly planted on something. Okay? So if you're going to be asking, asking in faith, knowing that, again, the solid point is that, God, I know that in this asking, on the other side of this journey, it's going to be okay because you are going to come through and answer. Okay, so that word means um, to waver, but it comes from, and this is interesting, it comes from a word, the the dis part of it, comes from a word that means twice or double. Now this is is important for us, because this is where it starts going south and starts venturing into destructive doubt. Doubt has this idea of being double-minded. Okay, when you are pursuing the Lord in a constructive area of doubt, you can't be double-minded. You can't be saying, well, I'm, I'm open to God not being real at all. 
No, it's I'm stepping forward, asking questions, seeking wisdom, knowing that, again, at the other end, the Lord's going to show himself faithful. My faith is going to increase, and me and Jesus are going for a walk. You know what I mean? But it gives this idea of being double-minded, which reminds us of James 1.8. He goes on later in, in James 1, verse 8, and he says, A double-minded man is what? Unstable in all of his ways. So this is where, and y'all please hear me, this is the transition here into destructive doubt. This is where the fox comes in and catches us in confusion. Because if you're not solid in, in faith and doubting and, and the reason for doubting and the reason for searching, what happens is that the enemy, the fox, comes in and starts creating this confusion. And this constructive doubt that leads to more faith turns into this destructive doubt that will end up in, uh, in just destroying us completely. Please, please write this down. Confusion and clarity. Confusion being from the enemy. Clarity always being from the Lord. The enemy never brings clarity. He's always deceitful, always lying. The enemy never brings confusion. It's always peace. It's always something you can trust and, and, and put your foundation, your trust in. Amen? Confusion and clarity are forever foes. Remember that. Confusion and clarity are always at war. They're always fighting against each other because Satan is always come against, coming against God and those who belong to God. So confusion and clarity are forever foes. If the fox can keep us on the side of confusion, then construct, uh, constructive doubts would turn destructive. Okay? If he can bring in and keep us in that realm of confusion, what started out maybe even as a constructive doubt, seeking more of the Lord, I just want to know answers, Lord, thank you that there's more to you and I just want to know. Or even like, I, I don't... God, will you heal me? Will, will you do these things? Are you able to do these things? Looking into the word. Ah, it turns out you said that you do um, make all things new. You do whatever it is that you're seeking, okay? But if you're, I just don't know. I mean, I just, I'm just so confused right now. Let's look at destructive doubt. Remember what I said. Destructive doubt comes from a desire to prove God wrong and destroys our faith. There's a scripture in Proverbs uh, 13, verse 12. We're familiar with it. Hope deferred makes the heart grow faint or makes the heart sick, depending upon what version you read. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Now, this is a big part. This is the entry point for the enemy to where constructive doubt, doubt that God's like, it's all good, it's all good, turns into this destructive doubt, and God's like, whoa, what's going on here? This is the transition point because we are people who get disappointed because we are people who are selfish and impatient. We want what we want when we want it. We want it to turn out the way we want it. Why? Because we're selfish. That's the whole thing we're trying to work on here. You know what I mean? That's our life's journey. More of him, less of me. I mean, that's the whole journey. But we're, we're selfish people. And when we feel like God's not coming through, usually, like I said, through selfish preferential, impatient kind of things, it causes our hope to wane within our hearts. And this is the entry point that that sly fox comes in and begins wreaking havoc on our vineyard. John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. But I have come that you may have life. Desire fulfilled is a tree of life. We've got to make up our mind. We can't be double-minded. The minute we're double-minded on our 
pursuit of the Lord, our journey here, the enemy comes in and mix it up. Oh, well, you should, this actually should have happened for you by now. And, and you can apply that to anything. Some of, some of us have struggled with certain sin issues or, uh, or whatever, vices, whatever, for years. Years. Go through the list. We've been going through the list, right? We've talked about this list. And you know what? Because I haven't experienced quite the victory in quite the amount of time that I thought it should happen by now, according to God's word, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty like jaded here. Why has God not come through for me? Is this even real? I don't know how many guys I've talked to that struggle with certain things. They're like, I should be done with this by now. I mean, if God was all powerful, all real, and really loved me, he would have delivered me from this by now. It's like, you know what? Tell that to the people of Israel who suffered slavery for 400 years under the promise that the deliverer was coming. In God's due time, he will bring about his fullness. For Israel, it's 400 years. And we know it's not going to be that long. I mean, think about it. Well, at least not, I know it ain't going to be 400 years. At the most, what, 80? (laughs) You guys hear what I'm saying? But all of a sudden, we find ourselves doing the opposite of James chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. Not asking for God's wisdom, but looking all of a sudden, all of a sudden, God's wisdom wasn't enough. It's not paying off. All of a sudden, I'm looking for wisdom from where? The world. Worldly philosophies, worldly mentalities, worldly doctrines, other religions. We're looking for something. Something will get me through this. Listen, there's nothing that will get you through it but Jesus Christ. And in His due time. So hang on, have constructive doubt, increase your faith, and it's going to take off. But stop being selfish, stop being impatient. You know what I mean? If God is long-suffering, then you can be too. You know what I mean? The Lord is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. He's patient. He's kind. He hasn't forgotten us. Write this down. A sick heart will seek wisdom from the world and gravitate towards things that are anti-God. It happens all the time. A sick heart, and that's coming from Proverbs 13. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. A sick heart will seek wisdom from the world and gravitate towards things that are anti-God. How many of you have seen it? How many of you have experienced it? A lot of us have. Why? Because we've been told that, you know, any doubt is going to just send you to Hades. It's like, listen, there is an entry point where doubt can turn south for sure. And we need to be careful because the enemy will come in and before we even know it, it's so sly. What started out as constructive doubt turned south, became destructive. Now listen, I want to share with you this story of Thomas because, you know, you talk about doubting. I mean, you instantly think of Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. So go ahead and turn to, um, where is it? Oh yeah, John chapter 20. And we're going to look at this and then we'll be done. John chapter 20. And this is the doubting Thomas scene. Most of us, if we've been in church long enough, we've heard this scene. We've talked about how Thomas was a doubter and you shouldn't be a doubter. And by golly, you know, whatever. Okay, I just want to read through this because I think there are some things that we learn, that can learn here. And let me just preface this by saying I'm not sure that that Thomas... uh, 
maybe he started out as doubt, but at this point in where he's at, in this thing that's going on with him, this isn't about doubt. This is about unbelief. Okay? So we're, we're, we're way past doubt. But let's see how he got there. Okay? Let's read. Verse 19, verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, make note of that, a particular day, when the doors were shut, when the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, uh, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, by the way, Jesus, he comes when we gather in his name. Even where two or more are gathered, even if it's just me by myself. He's like, I'm there. I'm there with you always. Okay, so Jesus is really kind of doing what he promised he would do. The apostles are gathering, you know, they're in the upper room on a particular day. Jesus shows up and says to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side on his own volition. Is that the word? You know, Jesus is like, check it out. I'm here. You know. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. By the way, they saw the hands and the feet too. Right? Just saying. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So there's this really neat transaction for the disciples that were there that day in that upper room in that visitation by God, okay? The people that were there that day received this special blessing. Well, they received the Holy Spirit, breathed the Holy Spirit upon them. Jesus is like, but look at what it says. But Thomas... Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus. I wouldn't let anybody call me that. I mean, maybe Dudemus. Dudemus. Anyway. But listen, Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, this could be a speculation and maybe not asking the right kind of questions, but we're talking about a group of men that were dedicated to Jesus, dedicated to each other, followed Jesus for three years, seen all kinds of crazy things. What I want to know is why was Thomas not there? Where was Thomas? Okay, where was he? This is obviously a gathering of the apostles for a particular reason. You know, you know why we know that? Look what it says. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. This is later. We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see, Thomas said, Unless I see in the hands and imprints of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails uh, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now look, after eight days, his disciples were again in the same place. How many days have passed? What does it tell us? They're in the same place, the same time. And so one of the things you can kind of figure out from that is this was a weekly meeting where people were supposed to be at. They were supposed to be there. Guess who else was supposed to be there the first time? Thomas. Why wasn't he there? You guys, you have to understand, Thomas is one of the guys, he was one of the, it was like Peter and Thomas made some pretty profound statements over all the other disciples. You know, uh, Thomas is the one that said, um, he said to his fellow disciples, let us go so that we may die with him. Because Jesus was, I'm going to be dying, I'm going to be going away, this isn't going to be good. Let us die with him. Talk about a devoted follower, right? 
He's also the guy that said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Why did he say that? Because he wanted to know. I will die with you. I want to go where you're going to go. I love you, Lord. But he wasn't there that, that day. Why is it? Could it be that he was heartsick? Could it be that his hope was deferred? He put a lot of stock in this whole thing. And all of a sudden, Jesus is gone. This whole thing. I think Thomas was in a place that right there in that middle point, maybe even went ahead and ventured into it, into this destructive doubt. I think Thomas was in a, was in a bad place. Because listen to what he says. You know what? You guys are crazy. Unless I see the, the nails in the hands and put my feet in whatever, put my hand in his side and, and, you know, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side. Look what he says. I will not believe. One of the things you have to realize is that doubt says, I can't believe it. But unbelief says, I won't believe it. There's a difference. And that's why unbelief is no doubt a sin. I won't believe that, you know? But this is where he is at. His hope was deferred. And I just thought about how many times, and we talked about it a little bit already, but how many times our hope has been deferred. We're just really bummed. And what did Thomas do? The same thing we do. We pull ourselves away from fellowship. We pull our way, ourselves away from church. We isolate ourselves and get ourselves into a funky place of it's the Lord's this, the church is this, and all of a sudden we're isolated and alone, which is always a breeding ground for confusion. It's always a breeding ground. There's nothing about being in Jesus that allots for or allows for isolation. It is not even, it's not even the God dictionary. It's together. It's community. It's soma. It's body. It's fellowship. It's gathering in his name to worship him. It's that transaction that comes when we gather together. I gather in his name. I draw near to him. He draws near to me. He trades beauty for ashes. I'm trading my sorrows for the joy of the Lord. You know what I mean? But that's what he did. Thomas wasn't there that first time. And the disciples, I'm, please hear me, the disciples are all telling him, because everybody else was there, and received a blessing, by the way. You know, when you're not there, you miss something, by the way. Anyway. But all these other disciples that he had walked with for three years, seen all this stuff, probably went, he went out two by two with somebody. Remember Jesus sent them out, and they healed people and drove out demons. All this stuff, all these guys that were buds, they were like a team, you know what I mean? All for one, they were like the three musketeers, the 12 musketeers, 11 musketeers, Jesus is dead, you know? (laughs) All for one, one for all. And you're telling me of all these guys that should be trusted, Thomas couldn't believe one of those guys? All, everybody else saw Jesus, described the same thing, Jesus was here. He showed us his hands. He showed us, unless I see it, what pride, what arrogance. You are not in a good place. And guess what? That's what isolating yourself will do. They don't know what they're talking about. I got the edge on it. What pride. But that's where Thomas was. No wonder he said, unless I see it with my own eyes, I will not believe it. You know what that's called? That's destructive doubt. He was in a place of unbelief. Because when you look at Jesus' response for him towards the end, 
He says, reach out your finger, see my hands, reach out your hands and put it into my side. I love that. I think Jesus was being kind of, kind of uh, funny with him. He's like, check it out. You got attitude? Jesus said, I can have attitude. Look what he says. And do not be unbelieving, but believe. Unbelief is the product of destructive doubt. Unbelief is where we don't want to get. Unbelief is you've gotten yourself to the point where <laughs> this is a bunch of junk. I'm, unless I see it, I am not going to believe it. I have had enough. Three years I walked with this guy, and he disappears. I don't need him. I don't need you. I'm out of here. But here's what's cool. He hears about it, even though he wasn't there the first time. Enough interest where he's like, well, okay, I'll make the next meeting. And he did. And guess who showed up? Just like he says he will always do when you gather in his name. Jesus showed up. And you know what? I don't think Jesus was mad. I think Jesus loved Thomas. In fact, I think Thomas is one of the main reasons Jesus showed up again. Let me just say this real quick. You are one of the main reasons Jesus shows up on Sunday mornings. In case you didn't know that. When you don't show up, this isn't a be sure to come to church sermon, but be sure to come to church. <laughs> I'm just telling you, how many times have I been blessed or someone been blessed or God speak a prophetic word over somebody that's like, whoa, how did you know that? And life is forever changed. That is supposed to be you sometimes. When you miss it, you either fail to receive that word or potentially give that word. I'll, I'll leave you with this. Listen, this is a, a quote that I found from Spurgeon. Doubt discovers difficulties which it never solves. He says, it creates hesitancy. This is what doubt can do. It creates hesitancy, despondency, despair. Its progress is the decay of comfort, the death of peace. And then he says, believe is the word which speaks life into a man. But doubt nails down his coffin. And this is the same thing Jesus said. Stop being unbelieving. Believe. Believe.